Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Resilient Health Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Darren Ingalls, and we're recording this in May, and May is Lyme Disease Awareness Month. So I'm really honored to have my guest today, Dr. Shannon Delaney. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Delaney. She is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Columbia University Irvine Medical, Irving, excuse me, Medical Center. Dr. Delaney does a mix of clinical work and research and is board certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist who specializes in seeing children and adults with complex neuropsychiatric presentations after suspected Lyme and or tick-borne illness. She also sees children with PANS, which is Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome. Dr. Delaney, welcome to the show. Thanks, Darren. Thanks for having me and for the nice introduction. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so honored to have you here. We're actually relatively new friends. We met not long ago through our mutual friend, Dr. Tom Moorcroft, and it's just always great to connect with other people in the Lyme community. And I think you have the unique position a, because you're you know, a psychi psychiatrist by training, but you've also been heavily involved in research. And I know one of the complaints I hear from my patients is like, how come nobody's doing any research on Lyme disease? And we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But mm -hmm. I want to just talk a little bit first about, tell me about your practice and the kind of patients you're seeing, because I think it's interesting, you know, each of us has have our own little kind of umbrella in the Lyme world, but tell me a little bit about the kind of people you're working with. Yeah, sure. Uh, I definitely have a unique vantage point, I would say, within within medicine. So I see a lot of, typically I see a lot of kids, adolescents. I also see adults too, but probably I would say 50 to 75% kids and adolescents. Uh, but they're often kids and adolescents who are presenting with these really complex neuropsychiatric symptoms and usually they're coming to me after they've had either a known tick-borne illness, such as Lyme disease or a different co-infection, or a suspected tick-borne illness. Like they've been sick for many years and someone, a friend, a relative, someone said, oh, have you thought about Lyme disease? And they want the input of a specialist in this area. So again, I usually see kids who've had Lyme disease, but I also see a lot of kids presenting with some of these lesser known co-infections such as Borrelia miyamotoi, Bartonella, even Babesia. Um, and often, you know, as you probably see, I often see uh, the patient who has multiple tick-borne illnesses at the same time. And so it's kind of a struggle to, to tease out what's doing what at, at times. You know, but oh, no, just I was just going to add that I actually don't see a lot of patients in the acute phase of illness. I usually see them in the chronic phase of illness. And by the time they get to me, they've often been sick for months, uh, you know, even years by the time they get to us, which is the sad part. I know. I kind of feel like very few of us see acute phase or acute Lyme disease. I think for people who experience that, often they go to the ER, they go to their primary doctor, maybe they go to an urgent care clinic. You know, and all the thousands of patients I've treated over the years, I mean, maybe maybe 5% of them are what we would consider truly acute Lyme disease. So by the time they get to our doorstep, you know, they've been struggling with these symptoms for a while. You know, I want to talk a little bit about the symptoms, you know, neuropsychiatric symptoms. I, you know, I see both, you know, children and adults where they start to experience these symptoms and they get shuttled off to the psychiatrist for medication and they get mm -hmm. these diagnoses that might be bipolar or mania or, or PANS. Can you just describe, you know, what are some of the symptoms that people might experience that they might not relate could be related to Lyme or tick-borne illness? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll just tell you about a patient that I just saw recently in the last week or so. This was a 17-year-old kid who actually, um, so this his symptoms started when he was 12 and he was living in the California area, I think um, like around Palo Alto area. And they had a house like kind of in the woods and he went off to camp, I think somewhere and got a very high fever and came back. And within, I think within a week or two had new onset psychiatric symptoms of abrupt onset OCD. And then very soon after the OCD, he started to have an eating disorder. So he became very anorexic. And then basically for the last five years, went down the psychiatric road. So inpatient psychiatric admissions, numerous of them, uh, none of them that, that none of them, which were very helpful other than to like restore his weight at times, put on multiple psychiatric medications where, which were also not helpful. And then it wasn't until just recently, I think within the last six months that finally they saw a Lyme disease specialist and did the full workup and was positive for suspected Lyme disease and Bartonella. And so that's kind of the classic patient that I see. Uh, They've been sick for many years. They've typically been, you know, sent down the psychiatric road. Nothing has helped. Usually they get progressively worse and then they end up on my doorstep. And then it's kind of teasing out the complex, like uh, constellation of symptoms that have developed and what caused what, and now, you know, what's the situation like now? Is this, you know, to what degree is this active infection versus like a disordered immune, dysregulated immune response? It's very complicated. Yeah. I I mean, I see so many, again, mostly young people, uh, children primarily that, you know, it's anxiety, it's OCD, it's tics, it's depression, it's like I said, anorexic and it affect their eating pattern. It can be insomnia and sleep disorders. It can be headaches. It can be migraines. And so often, again, they get shuttled from doctor to doctor and they don't get really any specific diagnosis. And of course, if they've been to a psychiatrist, I'm sure they're going to come out with some psychiatric diagnosis, mm-hmm. but really without the understanding of the why. And I know it's at the top of our list. If we see this presentation, it's like, hey, let's at least rule out the possibility of Lyme or some other tick-borne illness because they are common causes. And, you know, we should add that there are other infectious agents too that can affect the brain this way. It's not just tick-borne illness, but I think, again, if you or your child's been experiencing these kind of symptoms, it's a good idea to work with a Lyme specialist to at least explore the possibility that this might be, you know, part of what's going on. Because again, there's a lot we can do if we understand that's part of the problem. Otherwise you kind of get down, I think this litany of psychiatric medication uh, and again, it may help the symptoms, but it's certainly not addressing the root cause. Yeah, I had another, also within the last couple of weeks, another patient. This patient was a young adult who had been sick for eight years, I think. Really complex neuropsychiatric symptoms. Also went down the psychiatric road. They ended up giving him, instead of the OCD and the eating disorder that he presented with, he had symptoms of psychosis, new onset symptoms of psychosis, and a lot of, a lot of neurological symptoms as well. They sent him down the psychiatric road. He had ECT, he had TMS, he had all these very like intense psychiatric interventions, none of which helped. And then finally, I had recommended uh, doing a full tick-borne illness panel and he was serologically positive for tick-borne relapsing fever. So then it, you know, obviously becomes like, again, the question of now, what do we do in this situation? How do we, 
you know, get a further medical workup and where do we go from here? So what are, what are some of the things out there? Again, this is Lyme Disease Awareness Month. We want to try and bring as much education to the public as possible. What are the, the things that you wish people really knew about Lyme disease, but you don't think they do? Well, good question. <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> uh, so I guess just some basics. I mean, I wish, I wish people in general, both patients and doctors, uh, were better educated about Lyme disease and realized that oftentimes Lyme disease and tick-borne illness can be really difficult to diagnose, in particular because a lot of the the blood tests are very insensitive at times. Um, and also because the blood tests in general don't measure active infection, they're right. just you know measuring an indirect antibody response, which can tell us whether or not your immune system has been exposed to that particular bacteria in the past. Um, so in general, I wish that they understood the severity and the complexity of tick-borne illness, but also that you can you can have patients who present with tick-borne illness and Lyme disease who present predominantly with psychiatric symptoms too. Usually it's a mix of medical and psychiatric, but definitely psychiatric can be at the forefront. So I think that's something for people to to realize and think about very seriously, because obviously that changes the entire course of someone's diagnosis and intervention and treatment plan. Um, so I think that's important. I think prevention is a huge piece. No one talks really. There's like zero public awareness about Lyme disease and the fact that it's kind of everywhere and that ticks are, are rampant, especially with climate change and other things like deforestation. So it's really important that if you live in a tick endemic area and pretty much kind of everywhere is, but especially where I am in the Northeast, you really need to think about prevention strategies. Like I always tell my patients, if you're going outside to an area where, where there's a lot of ticks, you should, at the very least, you should be wearing insect repellent. Um, the CDC recommends something with at least 20% DEET. And if you don't like DEET and you'd rather prefer like more natural substances, there's something called IR3535, insect repellent 3535. And it's like a natural, I think, vitamin B derivative or something like that. So I think that's really, really important because I've heard harrowing stories of people who even living in New York, for example, in February will go outside and hardly be outside and it's a warm day and they'll have a tick attached. And it's like nobody would even think to be concerned about ticks in February in New York, but they're, they're really out there all the time. And oftentimes you can't, you can't see ticks um, because they can, they can be so small. I also tell patients that if you, find a tick on you. I think the impulse is to flush it down the toilet and like get it off <laughs> as soon as possible. But I always tell patients to send it into a commercial laboratory to, uh, to see what's inside the tick because they can do DNA analysis of the tick. At the very least, keep the tick in case you get sick down the road because that tick is very valuable at that point. Yeah. I recommend that my patients send to tickreport.com uh, and they've got a quick turnaround. I think you get a report within 72 hours. And again, for you and your doctor, it's good information to know what that tick is carrying. Is it Lyme? Is it Lyme Plus or something else? Because that may help guide, you know, the type of treatment you want to intervene with. And 
it's just, it's again, information is knowledge and it's, it's helpful to know. So yeah, don't burn the tick off. Don't slather it in Vaseline. All these old wives tales, we know don't work. And if anything may actually increase the risk of having that tick inject more of its saliva into your bloodstream and give you more of a possibility of acquiring something like Lyme disease. So, you know, they've got these cool little tools. I always forget the name of it. It's just like this long green thing. And it's got these two little like edges and you just slip it underneath the tick and you start twisting it and it very gently pulls the tick out uh, and you can find it on Amazon. Otherwise, just get some really fine tweezers, try and grab the tick as close to the skin. That's where the head is. Pull very gently. Do not yank it out. The tick is going to be embedded. And if you just keep be patient with it, pull gently, eventually that tick will dislodge and you can pull the tick out and hold put in a little Ziploc baggie. And then again, now you've got something you can send off to the lab and get information on. Yeah, it's good to know that you use that lab too. I've had a lot of good experience with them. Yeah, the other thing I should mention is that uh, I know there was a study done on permethrin that even spraying your shoes with permethrin. So permethrin is very toxic when it's wet. It's very safe when it's dry. So go outside somewhere and you can spray your shoes, let them dry thoroughly. Uh, but by just using permethrin on your shoes, it reduces your risk of a tick bite by over 70%. That is huge. So for such a low-level intervention to just spray your shoes, uh, I think that's worth investing in. And of course, long clothing when you're outdoors. And of course, tick checks. If you are going to be outdoors, again, particularly living in an endemic area, uh, especially with kids and pets, you know, strip everyone down, do tick checks. Uh, again, they're very small. They like the warm, moist areas of our body. So you have to look behind the knees, behind the ears and the hairline. I mean, when I got Lyme disease, I got bit underneath my left butt cheek and I couldn't see it. Somebody else is the one that saw the bullseye rash. So often it'll be in areas that we can't see on ourselves. So it's good to recruit a friend, family member to help do a tick check and just make sure that you're, you're safe if you've been outdoors. So you've been involved in research at Columbia, and uh, I just want to hear kind of some of the highlights. What are some of the things you learned in research uh, do you think is valuable for people to know? Well, I think, I mean, I can tell you a little bit about where I think research should go, and then I can highlight some of the important things that I learned as well. Um, I'm a little bit frustrated in the in the sense that, like, I wish there were, to be honest, I wish there were more clinical research, relevant clinical research going on in the field of, of tick-borne illness and Lyme disease. I find that oftentimes, um, you know, as any field, things can be siloed. So there's like the clinicians who are dealing with these patients day in and day out and they're in the trenches and they often like are in the community, really seeing these sick patients and trying to get them better. And then oftentimes at the same time, they're the researchers who are working very hard, but they're often doing basic science related things. So they're studying like a single protein right. of Borrelia, which, you know, doesn't often have a lot of clinical relevance or it does, but it's, you know, the implications of their research, maybe we won't know for, for decades. So I really wish there were more clinical research studies going on. Um, we at Columbia, we are doing a vagus nerve stimulation study that, that we're just starting right now. Um, so that's interesting because certainly that's clinically relevant. There's been lots of uh, studies on vagus nerve stimulators showing that they can decrease inflammation. Uh, so hopefully we'll, we'll see the same regarding Lyme disease. 
some one of the things I've been most interested in from the research perspective is learning more about this new tick-borne illness called Borrelia miyamotoi. Um, do you see a lot of patients with Borrelia miyamotoi? It's it's supposed to be more common in California. Yeah, I know they say something like up to 15, 15, 50% of Borrelia infections are Borrelia miyamotoi. And I do see a fair amount of it. I don't see 50%, but uh, it comes up frequently. Yeah. And the, the thing that just surprises me the most is that when I started on faculty at Columbia in 2017, I was just amazed because I had never heard of the stick-borne illness. This is not something you ever learn about in medical school. And it turns out that the first human cases of Borrelia miyamotoi disease, I think were in Russia in 2011. And the first cases in the Northeast weren't until 2013. So this is like such a new tick-borne illness. So when I started, I was very excited about the prospect of like learning more about this in our patient population, just because most doctors I had ever talked to never, ever knew anything about it. And they were rarely, even the Lyme disease doc doctors were often not testing patients for Borrelia miyamotoi. So we started consecutively testing everybody who was presenting to our consultation clinic over the course of a couple of years. Um, and then we published our data in 2020. And we found that we, we just tested every, all comers who were coming in. They didn't even have to have a history of tick-borne illness. They just were coming to us for a consultation related to tick-borne illness which is a pretty big umbrella. And we found that about 26% of everybody were serologically positive for Borrelia miyamotoi. Wow. Um, and we then we compared the people who were miyamotoi positive um, and not did not have antibodies positive for Borrelia burgdorferi to those who only had positive antibodies um, for Borrelia burgdorferi. And they presented very similarly like almost indistinguishable in terms of like clinically the chronic symptoms that they were suffering from. Um, but interestingly, our Miyamotoi population, I think something like 25% of them had been hospitalized during the course of their illness. So they were oh, presenting wow. like more severely in Sicker. terms of yeah, medical present. Most of those were medical. I think maybe one was a psychiatric hospitalization. So they, they definitely were a sicker population. Uh, so that's another example, nobody that I know of is really doing any clinical research related to Borrelia miyamotoi. I wish people were at least collecting bio, like samples, bio repository of blood and urine and things like that related to the, the other tick-borne co-infections because just nobody is studying them. Yeah. I'm always shocked when I look at the amount of research money that goes into cancer research and other chronic illnesses, and yet the NIH budget for Lyme disease is laughable. Yet, you know, we've got, well, according to the CDC anyway, you know, 476,000 new cases of Lyme disease every year. I understand that's new cases, so you can do the math and figure out every year that number keeps growing and growing. And again, it's probably underreported anyway, so we don't really know what the true number, but uh, I think we could safely say it's probably well over half a million a year. So, why we've got this epidemic on our hands, the fastest growing infectious disease in the world, and yet we've got virtually no money going into research. And I don't know that you and I have the answer to that question. The powers that be you know, dictate where the money goes. But uh, we've got this huge gap between, you know, research medicine and clinical medicine. So those of us out there on the front lines, you know, doing the best we can. Of course, we all collaborate with each other and we learn from each other. 
but you know what's coming off the bench in research unfortunately you know we've got limited in vitro studies a few animal studies and very very few human studies so um, hopefully this is something that will will change in the near future i want to ask you too about your thoughts on I, i've been reading you know periodically about different uh, pharmaceutical companies that are looking to develop a new lyme vaccine and we did have a lyme vaccine that i think stopped about 20 years ago and it was only on the market for a handful of years. And I think their rationale of why they stopped it, they said it was poor sales, but uh, we know that there were actually a lot of people that were having bad side effects because of the target of the vaccine it was actually causing a lot of arthritis and joint pain. So any thoughts uh, on you know the development of a Lyme vaccine? Do you think there's any hope that this might be preventive down the line? It's a good question. I mean, it's kind of crazy that we discovered this bacteria like over 40 years ago and we're kind of in the same place that we were back then. Uh, you know, in some ways we've made progress, but in other ways we haven't. In terms of the vaccine, you know, I think there's rumors about, there's a couple of different vaccines, I think in the product pipeline right now. Um, I think one of the reasons why the, the first vaccine failed also is because they were using OSPA protein, which presumably is quite inflammatory. So I think a lot of the patients who received that were, were having Lyme-like symptoms. Um, so I don't know that doing a similar vaccine in that vein would, would make sense. I, I did hear about a vaccine that was very intriguing about, um, and I don't know who's working on it, but it's basically a vaccine that prompts you to have a reaction when the tick attaches you and bites you. Uh, because most of the time when people have tick attachments, you don't feel them at all because, as you know, they release like a uh, the tick releases an anesthetic like protein that yeah. prevents you from feeling it. So I think with this vaccine, it's pretty elegant in the sense that it like causes an inflammatory reaction. So if that were to get off the ground, I think that would be amazing because that would be one of the purest forms of like prevention other than like preventing the tick from actually attaching. But as soon as you can get to the tick um, and get it off of you and start a prophylactic medication, the better. Uh, so that's the one that I'm most excited about and like would like to see where that goes. Yeah, I did read that one of the companies was also targeting the OSPA protein. And I'm like, well, wait a second, this didn't work very well before. I'm not sure what would be different uh, with the newer iteration of that kind of vaccine. So I, I don't know the answer to that, but I just thought I was curious. I'm like, I don't know why you're targeting the same inflammatory protein. Yeah, that was that was my initial thought too. I haven't, and because of that, I, you know, I didn't read read it about it in depth, but that would be my initial kind of preliminary thoughts. So I'm just curious about your own private practice. Uh, what do you feel like is the most meaningful part of your practice? Uh, well, a lot of the patients, like I was, I was telling you about before, um, you know, they have been down a very difficult road and oftentimes they just don't know where to turn. So I would say that sort of being there for the patients, educating them. And I personally love it. Obviously when I make a proper diagnosis, like that's the best feeling in the world, especially if they've been down this road and not only are things not getting better, but they're getting worse. And they just, you know, parents, family, the kid, you know, nobody knows where to turn. 
Um, so I really like to do a comprehensive evaluation and do a comprehensive lab work and, you know, check everything. And it's great when we get some idea about what might be contributing to the situation. So I would say that um, this is also very uh, vulnerable population and they often receive, uh, let's say, <laughs> difficult care from medical uh, providers who aren't very empathic with, with their, their journey, their medical journey. Um, and, you know, as a, as a provider who, who does this kind of work, I've experienced my own fair share of like interactions with medical doctors who don't totally understand about tick-borne illness and have very dogmatic opinions about it and don't necessarily like agree with, with people who have more expertise as I'm sure you've experienced. So it's nice to come in and be a doctor who's sort of seen this day after day and be able to tell and educate families and point them in the right direction in terms of diagnosis, treatment. That's probably the most uh, valuable or meaningful part of my job, I'd say. And then what might be the most frustrating part? Oh my God. <laughs> loaded loaded cool. question. Uh, so many frustrations, honestly, like lack of education of doctors related to this, to tick-borne illness, um, no treatment guidelines for chronic illness, um, not, not appreciating the severity of the disease. Like I wish, I wish people would recognize that tick-borne illness is like a disease like TB where they, you know, hit it hard with multiple antibiotics for a period of time and then people get better um, or embrace that we need a multifaceted approach of multiple avenues of treatment, including immune modulatory treatment, herbal treatment, you know, things like that. I wish there was just more curiosity, open-mindedness and like dedication to trying to to treat these patients. Um, yeah, I, I feel your pain. I mean, it's interesting. The government created this, you know, tick-borne disease working group, which on paper sounded like a fantastic idea. Let's bring some of the best minds together to talk about improving diagnostics, treatment protocols, and so forth. And I know at least initially, you know, they loaded the panel with doctors that are very outspoken against Lyme disease and are the ones that don't believe chronic Lyme disease exists and have you know, published several papers saying as such. So it was pretty clear from the beginning that this, this group really had no chance of providing really helpful information to those suffering from Lyme disease. And uh, I, I, I used to kind of follow their doings and I just sort of honestly stopped because it was just one frustrating report after another and really no significant change to implement anywhere. In fact, I think the last paper I read from the, the working group was they wanted to shorten the course of treatment from 21 days to 14 days of doxycycline. And, you know, you mentioned the TB thing. I, I think I, I tell my patients this all the time. This is how insane, insane it is. So, you know, I was a microbiologist before I was a doctor. I used to work with bugs. And oh, it's yeah. fascinating to me that, you know, tuberculosis has a slow life cycle. And if you get tuberculosis, you will get treated with a triple antibiotic cocktail for nine to 12 months. And the reason is it's slow growing. The best time to kill a bacteria is when it's in a replication phase. 
you know, most bacteria replicate every 10 to 20 minutes. Well, TB replicates every 15 to 20 hours, which is slow relative to every 10 or 20 minutes. Well, when you look at the research online, depending on who you read, it says anywhere from every one to 16 days, 16 days. Mm-hmm. So if we're willing to give people three hardcore antibiotics for a year for TB, and yet we're willing to give Lyme patients doxycycline, which doesn't even kill the bug, by the way, it's right. bacteriostatic, not bactericidal. So it just stops the bug from replicating. And you may not even get through a single life cycle of, of Lyme in that two-week period, depending on getting that life cycle. It, it makes no biological sense to me at all. We should write a, a joint commentary about this. <laughs> I don't know that anybody will publish it, but I mean, that's that's a little too logical, though. That's the problem. Yeah. So for those of you tuning in, you know, this is our frustration on the medical side where, you know, we recognize what a pervasive a problem it is, how difficult Lyme can be to treat. A big function of it is because of this nature being very slow growing. And not to mention that Lyme, again, has this ability to evade the immune system get inside of our cells. You know, there's just so many nuances of this this disease that for whatever reason, a lot of conventional medicine has tend to ignore or overlook. And, you know, you look at some of the research out of Hopkins, some of the research out of Monica Embers uh, down at Tulane. You know, we know that there are these persister cells with Lyme that, you know, up to 20% of these organisms are antibiotic resistant from the get-go. You know, how on earth can anyone logically say there's no such thing as chronic Lyme disease? It just, it just doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, I guess that's kind of where we're at, but you know, the good news is you've got doctors like yourself and me and Dr. Moorcroft and all of our other colleagues out there that are doing our best to help treat people with Lyme disease, get people recovered, get them back to the life. It's not always easy, but it's possible. Totally agree. Well said. (laughs) So on that, I always like to give the guests the final word. Any other things that you think uh, are important for people to know dealing with Lyme disease that uh, maybe they haven't heard before? I would just say just more general advice to to trust your intuition. Um, I think it's important as a physician also, like my patients uh, are the ones that I trust from the beginning. Like they, they know what happened to their body. They know what's going on. Uh, often, oftentimes they have the answer inside of them. Um, and so I think getting an accurate clinical history is really important. And from the patient perspective, like if you feel like you have a doctor that is not listening to what you're saying, or you have a hunch that, you know, an infection might've been contributing to your illness, I would say, find a doctor who will listen to you and will look at things a little bit more comprehensively. Well said. Well, I know people tuning in, listening to you are thinking, boy, this person sounds brilliant. I'd love to connect with her. Are you seeing patients at this point or are you just doing research? Uh, I'm doing research at the moment, but likely this summer we'll be starting a private practice. So stay tuned for that. All right. (laughs) Well, if Dr. Delaney gets out in private practice, we will make sure we send out a note to everyone to announce that because, again, you're one of the most brilliant doctors I've met. And again, the work you do is so important. And I know you help so many people dealing with these neuropsychiatric affects of Lyme disease. So I really appreciate you being on the show. Likewise, this has been so fun. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.